0: Welcome to Facing Mental Illness, the podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Seidman. And this is your
1: co-host and producer, Laura Randall. We are delighted that you're joining us today to hear another personal story of someone with lived mental health experience.
0: Some of the stories that you'll hear here do contain material that could be upsetting or uncomfortable to some listeners. We want to encourage you to exercise good judgment and self-care when you tune into our podcast, and maybe even have someone that you could listen to it with and dissect the material afterward. Today, our guest is Sharon Fekadee. Sharon is a business owner and author and speaker from Clearwater, Florida. And in 2019, Sharon wrote her book, The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and Business, which details her struggles at a younger age from depression and addiction. After getting sober at 21, she ran large medical practices in New York and Tampa Bay before establishing her own media consulting business, 13 Avenue Media, and a doctor consulting business called The Doctor Whisperer. And she now speaks frequently um, at conferences and workshops about mental health in the workplace. With no further ado, Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really happy to have you here.
2: Thank you, Carrie. I'm a big fan of your show.
0: Ah, thank you. So tell us a little bit about your childhood, your family, some of your early years.
2: Sure. So I grew up in Long Island, New York and my parents uh, immigrated from Ireland, from Dublin, Ireland, when they were in their late teens. I went to a private school growing up. I was uh, funny. I always got by with my humor I, because I, I did not feel good about myself physically. I was a chubby young girl, and I had acne really bad and a, a very innocent. Childhood. My mother, uh, my mother grew up with 12 brothers. Wow. Yeah. Like big pause there, because that's a lot of testosterone floating around (laughs) the family. And they all immigrated to Long Island, New York. So I have a very, very large family. My father comes from eight. So there's four brothers, four sisters. And it's just, you know, Long Island, big Irish Catholic family. And, um, lots of parties every weekend was a a wedding, a funeral, a baptism, <laughs> a christening. I physically felt very different. I was very self-conscious, very, very self-conscious. I felt very bad about myself. I became pretty popular uh, at the end of grammar school. I was with the most popular girl and and dating somebody popular because of my sense of humor but I would feel horrible on the inside. And that just kept changing along with the hormones, you know, but I started becoming really, really self-conscious. And and that's when the drinking um, really began. I, I realized that I could I could take something and not feel. I realized that if I drank, I would have more self-confidence. I would feel better about myself. And then, you know, I'd be funnier and skinnier and and the acne wouldn't look so bad. Do you know, it, it was very pretty innocent in the beginning, I would say, uh, until I was 18 and I came home to a, a family intervention. Um, and they, they said, you know, we think that you might have a problem. We're gonna send you away to a place for adolescents and you're leaving tomorrow. Um, yeah, went to my first rehab at 18. I found my tribe. I found people that were a lot like me, I thought. You know, they were misunderstood. <laughs> I certainly didn't think I had a problem, you know, at 18 years old, who has a problem. And, um, and I really had a good time. I got into two rehab romances and, you know, then it was boys, <laughs> you thing, know,
0: all the things you're not supposed to do, right? Yeah.
2: All the things, just, just the rebel. So you, yeah.
0: you weren't really taking this whole thing very seriously at this oh. point. It's like, they think I have a problem. I'm fine.
2: A hundred percent. Did not think I had a problem. I just thought I'm 18. I'm having a great time. I don't see how it's affecting anybody. It was, but it, to, in my eyes, and as you will hear as the story progresses, it was pretty innocent at the time,
0: right? For
1: sure.
2: So my first rehab, and then you know, I I, I probably was sober five days. Who even knows? Mm-hmm. And um, then I start picked up again. Got arrested this time. And was now mandated to my second rehab. I put my hand on a Bible in a courtroom and say that I'm never going to drink again. And they send me away to my second rehab. And they didn't tell me, which was smart, that I was also going to be mandated to a halfway house. So 30 days, and then it was going to be three months after that. And God knows when you're 19 years old, you do not have that kind of time. I definitely uh, saw there might be an issue but I certainly wasn't convinced. I remember my roommate at the time was there because she was afraid of relapsing. So she was sober for a long time. So she was there for kind of a relapse prevention. So I felt like she was this little angel talking to me about how this disease is very progressive. So I started to hear it, but I was not convinced at 19 years old by any means. And I really, at both rehabs, I have to say I had a ball. I really did have a great time, you know, cause you find your people and you swap stories and my goodness, we were getting up and singing, lean on me and eating together and walking through the forest and really, really did feel like I was at camp and I never got to have that experience as a kid. So that is what it felt like. And you get really close to these people, you know, because you know their deepest, darkest secrets. But then when they told me I had this halfway house to go to, and it was in Poe New York, not anything that I'd ever experienced. And I was there a month, and this was the time my first experience of depression set in, because it was the longest I had been without alcohol and drugs, I would say, since I was 14, even though it wasn't like an everyday thing, if I felt bad or If I wanted to get out of self, I always had a substance, but now I'm at 40 days and I haven't had anything. So the depression started to sink in. And what happened was I I told this counselor that I was from a residential area. I said, I'm not like these people and I'll never be like these people. And I want to go home. And I called my parents who had stopped at this point going to Al-Anon and uh, they came and picked me up. And I was, I was very depressed I just felt like I had nothing going for me. The realization was happening like I'm 19. I had all of these friends that I had grown up with that now are like in college and they're dating somebody seriously. And now I'm going to go back home. And there's been this huge gap of time where it's been rehabs and halfway house. And, you know, I really, it started to all sink in and everybody wanted me sober and I just wanted to be out of self but it was quick before I picked up again. And this is where, you know, it got really bad. I feel like the the G-rated version just happened. And then I blacked out and ended up in Detroit, Michigan. I don't even know who I am, but I am high and drunk 24 hours a day. That time in Detroit, Michigan is a complete blackout, except for, you know, the really bad trauma the the beatings that I got, um, horrific things happened that I will leave for another conversation maybe. Well, so the final time I had gotten beaten up by this man, I I walked into this bar and the, they gave me a beer with a straw. And because my face was unrecognizable, he had beat me so bad, and I knew I had to go home. So I took a Greyhound bus, and I got home. And nobody said boo. Nobody told me I needed to get sober. Nobody told me I needed to get a job. They were just so happy, as you can imagine, that I was home. And and then the depression came back. 21 years old, I was completely exhausted from life. Little did I know that the depression was going to come in in a bad way. The first six months that I was home, I was planning my my death for the most part. I was just trying to figure out a way that I could escape. My father worked for New York Hospital, and while I was away in Detroit, he had been seeing an EAP counselor, Ben Figueres, and he said, Sharon, I think you'll really like him. He's a lot like you. And my father and I are a lot alike. We're uh, very stubborn, rebellious. My father's been the boss. He was the boss for 42 years at New York Hospital. And he said, I think you'll like him. So I took, you know, uh, I walked to the train station, of course. My parents wouldn't give me a ride. Took the Long Island Railroad and a bus to see Ben every Tuesday. And Ben was the first person that had the, I don't even know if it was the courage. He had the awareness to ask me if I was having suicidal thoughts. And it was the first time anybody had ever asked me that. And I said, yes. And from that moment on, um, it was the end of isolation for me. And somebody knew my secret. And he was the first person to get me the help that I needed. And it took it took a while for the depression to lift. It was a combination of the love of my family, the recovery group that I was a part of. And uh, Ben is, mm-hmm. is the man who actually helped save my life. So then, you know, I mean, recovery was a phenomenal <laughs> way of life. Now I am um, I have this design for living that I could apply to my life in business. And life was starting to happen again. And I was, you know, dating somebody wonderful and had my own apartment. All the things were, were happening. I felt really cool because I was going into Manhattan and working. And I broke my ankle playing softball right before 9-11 And I was now, you know, home and not sure what I was going to do. And and then I had an opportunity to come and do some work uh, at a medical company called New York Medical. And and that was really a whole transition of now working with physicians. And my goodness, like for somebody that blacked out and moved to another state, the, the last group of people I thought. would be working with would be physicians and i you know became their boss and um, i was director of operations and we had 11 offices and 42 satellite offices and you know i was a solution strategist i learned how to uh solve problems because i was a problem (laughs) and uh, and my recovery design for living was very very helpful in business you know i really just knew that people wanted to be heard, and when there were issues within the organization, with doctors arguing or staff having, they would send Sharon in, you know. And um, and I really loved it because it was very busy and very stressful. And you know what i've What I've learned today is that I I was I was traumatized. I would have never said these words before twenty nineteen. To be honest with you, Carrie it wasn't until I, I wrote my book that I realized how much trauma I had endured. You know, when you go into recovery, it's very solution-based. If you are lucky enough, like I was to have people, I had somebody, I was five years sober and somebody asked me how long I wanted to stay sick inside of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty hefty question coming from somebody who's got less time than me, but boy, was he right. Um, I hadn't done any of the work. I hadn't done any of the steps. I was just showing up and telling this grand story of ego. And, you know, I had the big blackout move to Detroit story and depression. And I, it was a lot of ego, Carrie. It really was. And I think that learning how to live in a solution was really wonderful, but it also pushed a lot of my trauma down. And what happened, what I realized today I, I was traumatized. I mean, that's why I was depressed and I stuffed all my stuff down and it came out in other ways. I I was in toxic relationships. I was in toxic jobs, even though I had a wonderful position as director of operations. It was a very toxic, hostile environment. I was always stressed out. I was always taking care of other people. It turned into codependency. I was always the one organizing everything. So you just take that stuff and I pushed it down. I also learned in my culture, you know, coming from Ireland, you certainly don't talk about your problems. And now I say that about my culture. I know it to be true that it's actually everybody's (laughs) because now, you know, I hear it. Oh, well, well, where I come from, where I come from, well, well, where we all come from. We don't typically talk about the difficult stuff like we're talking about today. Um, I made a decision at 10 years sober because I, that job at New York Medical was coming to an end i took uh, an opportunity to move to florida at that point i i moved to tampa bay by myself
0: and was that just sort of like okay i'm going to have a fresh start i'm in a new place and
2: yep my my the company you know went bankrupt i did not want to go back into manhattan and work again i had i just figured you know i got sober i survived so many things i had a higher source in one hand and recovery in another, I could really do anything I felt. I've really felt that deep in my soul. And I've had the same sponsor for the last, you know, 26 years we've been together. I'm sober 28 years now. But, um, and I asked her, I, I spoke to her a lot before I left and I moved here. I didn't know one soul. I just knew that, you know, God gave me brains and I would be okay. And, After living um, on the beach for a good six months, I finally uh, took a job running a a large pediatric practice here in Pinellas County. And I did that for eight years. I met my husband. I've been married um, 13 years. I've been with him 15 years. I have a 19-year-old stepson. He was three when we met.
0: In 2019, I think, after 25 years sober, you decide to write your book. Talk about what brought you to that place of wanting to do that and and what you hope to do by writing the book.
2: I was consulting for all of these doctors. I would go in and restructure these medical practices. And I have always asked the same five questions to these. My whole goal was to really understand from the team what was happening, why they needed my help, because it's always about, team. They know everything. So I would go in, I would tell the doctors, listen, I want to meet with your staff. And I didn't care how many of them I would ask. I would line them all up and I would ask them five questions in about five minutes. They would all be crying to me just because I asked them simple questions. How long have you been here? What do you love about your job? What do you hate about your job? How do you like to be rewarded? And that's when they would cry. And they would always say, because I just you know, I just wish somebody would say, thank you. And I always thought it was so interesting. Like it was so simple. It was so simple to, to get these people to love what they were doing, but they were treated so horribly in majority of the places. And I just got, just one day I was riding my bicycle over the Bel Air Causeway. And, um, and I was like, I know I, I, I should write that book. Because I always knew that if I could connect with people and be vulnerable with them, that I'd have an opportunity to really help a practice, to really help a business. I just saw so much pain and toxicity. And I, I started to feel like this fraud because here I am living this life of, you know, it was luxurious. None of it impresses me because I've been a crackhead, a homeless crackhead. So I always had so much empathy for people and I always looked at somebody like they had potential and we can help people. I just decided one day that I was gonna tell my story and I remember telling my husband and he did not think it was a good idea. Nobody really thought it was a good idea. I made a real decision, even the how you know, naming the book, The Broken Road to Mental Health, to say the words, as you know, Carrie, is just so important. And I didn't want to, if I was gonna tell my story, I was gonna have to tell the deep, dark and ugly. And I think I put most people that know me in a state of shock. They couldn't believe because who, who knew nobody's ever seen me. They've only seen me be very responsible. I didn't think I was going to heal as much as I've healed since writing the book. I honestly, Carrie, I really believe the story that I was told and the story that I was telling which was that I had a chemical imbalance. I never associated anything with trauma because when I was writing it, I was reliving it. And I documented it every day because I didn't want to forget how I felt. Like I felt like I felt like I was changing every day that I wrote. But I was 25 years sober before I wrote the book. And that was the most important thing. Like I had so much healing to do. And I do believe today I was protected you know, I mean, there's a lot of um, studies about that, right? Like, I feel like my I wasn't even ready to, to relive that trauma until I was 25 years sober.
0: How did writing the book change you and how did it change the work you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, writing the book changed everything. I, this was not the plan. I didn't write the book. I wrote the book for somebody else. I wrote the book because I... I even recorded my book on my podcast because I wanted people to have access to it for free. But I really just wanted people not to feel alone, that you can go through major adversity and you can thrive, You not just survive, you can thrive and you can help other people. I really felt like that was just very important. And I think because of the businesses that I've run and the people that I've had the great blessing to work with, that it didn't matter where anybody came from. People that were physicians, surgeons, very sad things happened to very successful people. And I just felt like there needs to be more bravery in talking about it. I didn't think it was going to change my whole business trajectory. I didn't think I was going to now put all my effort into speaking about mental health in the workplace. But can you imagine how I felt when I put it together that my father's EAP, my employee assistance program at New York hospital was the reason that I didn't kill myself. And now that I opened up about it and so many, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have reached out and, and told me their deepest, darkest, you know, and now it's just a responsibility. I don't have a choice anymore. I'm just listening. As I always say, I'm, I'm listening to the whispers I talk about a crane a lot in my book. It's on the cover because a crane picked me up and put me in all the places that I was meant to be in and saved me. That crane is like, you know, my, my higher source. And so I just listen. And even if it's tough and let's do this, let's break the barriers and, and normalize the conversation like you've been doing on the show. That's how we really help people.
0: So when you go and talk to people now about mental health in the workplace, what would you like to see happening in the workplace? Um, What do you advise should be happening in the workplace? Well, the leaders need to learn how to
2: either be more real and vulnerable with their team. That is the, there's no other, in my opinion, it is the best way. As an employer, if somebody came to me and said they suffered, you know, way back from anxiety and depression, I would probably take a second look. So I think that employers that don't have a safe space for people to say, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing so great today. And it's not because I don't want to fake a cold. I'm just struggling and I'm not doing well mentally. In this day and age, in 2023, people aren't going to stand for it anymore. They're going to go where there are safe spaces to talk about mental health. I think every employer needs to take this very seriously. I was able to do a a talk for 40 therapists called Heal the Healers recently, and all of them told me how much people come to them and speak about the toxic work environments that they're in. And people, you know, they always say people don't leave companies, they leave bad bosses, and that's the truth how do we train our hr how do we train our leaders to have these conversations to provide a space that is safe to allow somebody an opportunity to struggle through mental health issues not lose their job get promoted get that raise i really do think that even though it's so simple that if somebody's willing to be vulnerable the leaders willing to be vulnerable and have meetings you know you have yeah. to be willing to have the conversation, not just during the hashtag month of suicide prevention month, mental illness month, mental. I'm so grateful for those hashtags because we get to talk about it more. But if you incorporated it on a monthly basis, if you had open conversations, you would, see, you would see a lot less turnover. I promise you that. We're spending all of our time at work, right? We have to make a living. Why not? Uh, empower somebody. And it doesn't have to be HR. It could be somebody that's a leader that you know has great EQ skills and talk to them about, you know, just being that open door. I'd rather tell you this, Carrie, I went to Alabama and I spoke to 70 executives and I told, I started with leaders, right? Cause they, they didn't want me to call my talk mental health in the workplace, which is what I always want to call it. I want to keep it real. So they want me to, you know, wrap it up in a pretty bow, leadership, wellness, and self-care, whatever. I don't care. Just let me get in there. And I'm going to tell them anyway, start with, you know, my career and how I've been able to secure these positions and open my own businesses and all that. And then I hit them. I hit them with the blackout to Detroit, Michigan. Right. And then by the time I'm done and I've talked about suicide and I've talked about mental health and all the help that I get, there's always going to be that one person. And the last time I did it was on St. Patrick's day. And there was a gentleman standing waiting to talk to me. And he, I knew, I knew that it was going to be bad, whatever he told me. And he said, I never thought that I was going to come to this leadership retreat and hear about this. Three weeks ago, my son, 22 years old, took his life and he was sober. And I couldn't believe what you were saying about being sober and being suicidal. And we got to have this incredible conversation. So that's why I do it. Carrie. (laughs) I don't care about, I don't care about the money. Like I don't care about anything else except being able to help that one person that is still struggling and that has lost a child. I'm still here. You know, I'm a miracle. There's no question about it. It's very important. So if I'm doing something at a place where somebody doesn't want to say the words, mental health, I feel like shame on you at this stage. If you can, if you can save somebody's life, I do have hope because it's, it's, if we have celebrities and athletes, and that's what I talk about in the book, like it's awful to hear about celebrities killing themselves. It's awful to hear about Kate Spade. It's awful, but it gives us an opportunity to talk about the real stuff. And the most successful business owners, entrepreneurs are stressed, stressed. It's not about talking to them about self-care and getting a massage at the spa. It's a lot more than that. If if I can help one person, and as cheesy and as cliche as that sounds, that has always been my truth. So I hope to continue uh, never forgetting where I came from. 28 years later, I still go to as many meetings as I did back in the day. And I'm still gonna reach my hand out to help somebody else because how dare I not do that? Because there were so many people that helped me along the way, people like you.
0: Sharon, what an amazing story. And I feel so much admiration for you with how mm-hmm. you have taken this journey into, into a realm of really being committed to mm-hmm. to helping others. And so that 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 personal experience, that's why you're doing what you're doing. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um just thank you for that. And and thank you for sharing your story with us. It's fantastic. We will, to to anyone who's listening, we will, of course, have uh, links to Sharon's website um, and to the book on my Substack. I just wish you all the best in continuing this wonderful work that you're doing.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate what you're doing.
0: Thanks so much, Sharon. Best of luck. I know that uh, you've had a lot of experience in, in the business world and just was interested to get your reaction. I think what my biggest takeaway from Sharon's talk was the very important work that she's doing to share with business owners and people in the nonprofit sector, how important it is to consider the mental health of your employees and how important it is, um, not only for them, but for the health of your business. Because if you have unhealthy employees, you're not going to have a healthy business. And I think, you know, I know that I've noticed more and more with the younger people that I've um, spoken with for the podcast. this This is a big issue for them when they're looking for work now. They're looking for a workplace that cares about their employees' mental health, that gives them opportunities to get help if they need help, that is more flexible in terms of when their mental health um, maybe requires a break or or something. So just wondered what your experience was in, in that world.
1: Carrie, I think you're spot on there. I look at the experiences of my daughters who are in their 20s and along with my own experience having recently switched um, organizations and my ability to care for my own mental health and to care for my family was a huge factor in which opportunity I selected. So I do think and and you're spot on. I think what's really going to make employers stand up and listen is that a happy workforce is a productive workforce so it's good for your bottom line if you have not just happy employees i don't think we all need to have ice cream on fridays but i do think that having a stable contented group of employees is is good for business but it's also the right thing to do and particularly as people are looking at a tighter labor market it's um it's a it's an employees market so i think all employers would be wise to heed Sharon's advice and really care for the um, the mental health of their employees and their employees' families as well.
0: And because Facing Mental Illness also cares about the mental well-being of its um, participants and its Producer and founder, I'm taking this opportunity to just let our listeners know that um, with this podcast with Sharon Fuchetti, we will be putting the podcast on hiatus temporarily, both because Laura and I have a lot of other things going on in our lives, but, but more importantly, because Facing Mental Illness is launching a new mental health art project here in Sarasota. And those of you who are with us from the beginning know that the original Facing Mental Illness Project had an art component, and we've kind of tweaked it a little bit this time. uh, We're having teams of artists rather than individual artists, and they're going to be exploring the commonalities in their mental health experiences and creating um, some kind of work in any kind of medium to, to show that. It's called Common Ground. Uh, is the name, and it will culminate in an exhibit here in Sarasota next April. We're doing this in collaboration with two groups here in town: the Spaces Art Gallery and Foundation, which is a nonprofit gallery, and SRQ Strong, which is an organization that works to educate uh, people about the impact of trauma in their lives. Um, so the those are our collaborators. I have uh, written a a post a blog post that will be going out to everybody who's getting this podcast as well to tell you a little bit more about it, to tell you how you can participate in helping us produce this show and how you can be a part of it as we um, as we follow along with the artist's journey. So uh, we will we will miss the podcast, but um, hopefully they will be back when we've completed this project, and I just want to take this opportunity to thank Laura so much for her tireless work in editing these podcasts, which is really the the awful dirty work. of <laughs> oh I get to do the fun stuff, I get to talk to the people and do the interviews and then Laura gets to sit for hours and edit out snippets of and rambles. So um, thank you, Laura, for for all your work on this and thank you to all the listeners out there who've stuck with us and please continue to tune in. We'll be sending, I'll be sending some regular posts about this new project and would love to hear from you uh, about what you think about that as well.
1: And Carrie, I would be remiss if I didn't thank you for the opportunity to do this. I don't know if we've bored our audience with the story before, but Carrie and I met at a time in my career where I was a little bit at at wit's end, and she asked if I knew anything about a podcast, and I said, no, but I'll learn, and um, thus became this beautiful project, and I have been so honored to work with such a professional interviewer, and not only with Carrie, although she was the highlight of the, the experience, but listening to the stories of our viewers and part of what I do is listen to them on repeat and I hear the pain and the beauty and the sorrow and the evolution that our storytellers take as they walk through their journey with you Carrie and I don't know if you caught that but it's just it's beautiful and I'm so proud of the work that we've done and um I'm Looking forward to the work that you're doing next, Carrie. And I look forward to supporting that. And if the time is right, we're going to be back here creating more beautiful podcasts. (laughs) It's not music.
0: (laughs) uh, Please remember, everyone, also, that all of the stories and podcasts are still available on the Substack website, Facing Mental Illness. They're all free. You can go back in the archives. You can listen to old podcasts. You could read old stories. And so, and there's a lot of material there. So I don't think you'll miss us too much. (laughs) I'll miss you, Carrie. (laughs) Thank you. And
1: again, um, thank you all for sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you to people who shared their stories to me, knowing that I was related with, to this podcast. um, And um, there'll be a time for you to tell your story. So don't go far away. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks, Laura.